Greetings and welcome to episode 10 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today we have one of my favorite topics, Han Feizi. Han Feizi lives during the 3rd century BC, is the only one, really, of the Warring States philosophers who gets the opportunity to apply his principles in office. Okay, we talked about all the other shi, uh, Confucius, Mencius, Xunzi, Zhuangzi, um, Mozi, None of them really ever got a top stable post at a court. They wanted it. They prescribed. They came up with prescriptions about how an ideal king would rule his state um, if they were able to get his ear and advise him. Um, but most of them failed pretty miserably. Um, and the only place they really succeeded was in recruiting a lot of students who came and listened and paid for their instruction and then propagated their ideas through the centuries. Uh, Han Feitze is actually going to be an acting official who has the ear of the king of his state. So that makes him very, very different. Okay, But as we're going to see, he also owes a lot of debt to the Confucian philosophers who come before him. And we'll actually even see a little bit of Moltze and a little bit of Zhuangzi, surprisingly, uh, the Taoist philosopher in here as well. Um, now, the way that I like to think of Han Feitze, the way that I always introduce him, is he is going to take abstract Confucian ideas and he is going to blend them and mold them with the reality of trying to run a very large state. All right, now when you take abstract Confucian ideas and you confront them with reality, you force them to conform and make um, concessions to your principles in accordance with what the reality of the situation is that you face, you get a different school of thought that is known in history as legalism. All right, Han Feitz is usually classed under the, under the rubric of a legalist. Okay, now he is directly connected to one of the most famous Confucian thinkers, Xunzi. He was Xunzi's student. All right, one of Xunzi's many students. Okay, so everywhere when we talk about Han Feitz's ideas, we want to look for their logical counterparts in Xunzi's ideas that we covered in the last episode. Okay, because Han Feitze is really taking Xunzi's ideas and applying them to government with a hard-nosed pragmatism and cynicism. And he's going to take Xunzi's ideas very far, and Xunzi would almost certainly disavow what Han Feitze does with his ideas, but nonetheless, you can easily see how the two are related. All right, now, it's one of the easiest ways to conceptualize the difference between a Confucian like Xunzi and a legalist like Han Feitze. Uh, Xunzi is talking a lot about the importance of rites and rituals. We've been talking about rites and rituals for so many episodes now, I'm sure you're sick of it. We're almost done, I promise you, and we're going to talk very little about rites after today's episode. Okay, we'll move on to other things finally. Uh, he talks a lot about rites and rituals and the importance of having of everyone knowing these rites so that they understand how to interact with other human beings and create a harmonious society. All right, And he stressed the importance of inequality. Rights tell us how human beings of unequal st status and stature, which we're all unequal, and he says that's necessary. Inequality is a good thing. In fact, in his oxymoronic statement, he says inequality creates equality, or at least as much equality as you can hope to get. It's impossible to have true equality. And the rights teach us how people of different statuses are supposed to interact with other people of different statuses. And you can take this in, in terms of gender, in terms of class, in terms of race. Well, not really race, it would be civilization is how they would have thought of it. Not really a racial thing, but a level of culture 
barbarians versus civilized people. Okay. And Hanfetsu is going to take Shunzu's rights and say, whatever Shunzu says about rights, I'm going to say that's what laws are all about. Shunzu talked about how rights govern society. I am going to replace rights with laws and society with government. Okay? And he's going to say that laws regulate government in the same way that Shunzu's rights regulate society. And if you're still in the dark about, you know, concretely, how, how do these rights apply to our daily lives and whatnot? Um, I always like to think with my students, I'd like to bring up the example, and this is an example that sort of dates me a little bit and shows already how I'm already sort of getting a little old. Um, think of Seinfeld episodes. Think of comedy sitcoms. Okay? Um, and almost all sitcoms today, so much of the comedy scene today is based on the idea that we no longer know what the rules are for how to interact with other human beings, usually relationships, uh, but it can be any human beings, and therefore the comedian plays upon our ignorance of what the new rules are for how people should interact with one another. Okay? And Seinfeld started this. Seinfeld really was the first show that systematically poked fun at our lack of knowledge, our ignorance of, uh, you know, once things are all jumbled up, we no longer know how we interact with one another, then you can exploit that for humor. And one of the, the assignments that I like my students to do is to go onto YouTube, if they're not familiar with Seinfeld, if they didn't watch it like I did growing up, um, go on YouTube and look at, watch some Seinfeld episodes or excerpts or whatnot, and identify what is the ritual that the characters are expressing ignorance of and deriving humor in arguing and discussing about what the real ritual should be. Now, of course, the people who created Seinfeld would never think of it in that way. They would never say, you know, Seinfeld is a story about how human beings get our rituals all mixed up. Okay, but that's exactly what's going on. There are so many scenes you, that you can think about. Um, you know, how do you know when you have a girlfriend? They have a whole episode devoted to exploiting the humor and the signs that you should see, the rituals in your life, in your relationship, that would show you you have a girlfriend and this is now how you have to interact with her and treat her based on that understanding. Kramer wants to make his own pizza. He sets up a store, uh, a restaurant with his chef friend that people come in, you can make your own pizza. And when Kramer starts to want to make his own pizza, he puts on his own ingredients and his chef friend, his colleague, who's opening the store with him, says, oh, no, 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 you can't put that on a pizza. And he says, my pizza, I can do whatever I want. And he says, no, 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 but you can't put this on a pizza. For the life of me, I can't think of what it was that Kramer wanted to put on that pizza. But believe me, there was something uh, that he wanted to put on the pizza. Um, the humor is derived from neither side knowing what is the accepted ritual for the creation of a pizza. Okay, when, And when you start thinking of it in this way, you start to realize that the rites, the rituals, are not just abstract ideas that grumpy old Confucian men are arguing over. They permeate our life, we just don't think of them as rites. But every single thing that we do, when we interact with another human being, we do it in accordance with rituals. We may not articulate these rituals, but we're always re reworking them. And we have some reference point in which we think we know what the rituals are and how to interact with your friend, your spouse, your parents, your kids, whatever it might be, your work colleagues. And Shunzu was saying, here are the rights. Every Confucian was saying that. Han Feitz is going to say, that's 
society. Now we need to figure out how to run a government. The equivalent of rights, of rituals in government for society at large and how it's going to be regulated and kept in order, that's laws. Laws play the exact same role in government as rights play in society. Han Feitze says, Government is the earthly arbiter of human behavior. Unlike the Confucians, he doesn't believe that there are super gentlemen that can reform the world. Okay, in reality, government does that. Confucians, he says, will tell you to employ men of integrity and good faith. Han Feitze will tell you there are not enough of these to go around. This is, he's, he's Shunzi's student here, okay? He believes, like Shunzi, that man is born evil. His, his nature is evil. Okay, and yes, some people can grow up and they'll be less evil. And they're put in contexts and situations in which they will pursue good things, but that's the situation around them. Helps them out. Okay? Remember, Shunza had that wonderful example about the orchid root. And he says, you know, if, uh, if you do one thing to this, it can become a fragrant perfume. But if you piss on it, yes, ladies and gentlemen, Shunza, one of the most famous concepts, analogies in the history of Confucian philosophy, uses urine uh, to illustrate its point. If you pee on it, then it becomes repellent. Okay, the context around it is what determines what it becomes. Han Feitze would agree that human beings are the same way. They can go either way. And if left to their own devices, they'll probably go evil and do bad things. But government will institute laws, that's the context, that's the P, that's the urine, okay? <laughs> Government will institute the laws that ensures that the orchid root, the people, grow up well and are regulated and a harmonious society is created. Okay? Now, Han Feitz's geopolitical, his chronological backdrop is very interesting and crucial to understanding what he's talking about. All right, this is 3rd century B.C., Alright, the, the, the 200s. You're going to get your first empire in 221 BC. That is the resumption of a unipolar world. But we have had a multipolar world for many centuries now. About five centuries. Okay, in which you have well over 100 individual states. This is called the Warring States Era. Brutally massacring each other's armies on the field of battle. That's why many of the philosophers are trying to debate in the first place whether or not they think human nature is good or evil. Because it sure looks pretty evil <laughs> if you see what people are doing during the Warring States era. Now, in the 3rd century BC, the pool of Warring States is dwindling. Finally, at long last. Okay, instead of over 100, you're getting down to 50, then 20. I think in Han Feitz's time, we're talking about, you know, 10, 15 states at most. And it's going to get less. Obviously, we know it's going to get down to 1 eventually by 221 BC. And what that means is not only are you, are you resuming a unipolar world, you are resuming it on a scale never before seen in the history of the world. The new state has absorbed or defeated all the other states. It's huge, in other words. This is an enormous state. You've never seen a state this big before in the history of East Asia. This poses an immense problem of bureaucratic control. How are you going to bring all these states with their own customs, their own ways of writing the Chinese characters, their own forms of speech, their own dress codes, all kinds of stuff is different. How are you going to bring these people together into one state and say, you all have something in common? 
this is the problem Han Fantasy is dealing with. How are you going to run a large bureaucracy, essentially? Larger than the world has ever seen before. So he's, he's coming up with ideas on how to transition, in an, and to think of it in other words, from a feudal to a centralized imperial system. Okay? Prior to the creation of the First Empire in 221 BC, what you have in East Asia is you have feudal lords under the sway, under the, under the, the, the control of a king in each individual state. Okay? And the hierarchy of power between a king and his feudal lord is much more tenuous than you're going to have in a centralized government bureaucracy. Okay? When a king wants to give orders to his lord, he just tells him, you can do anything that I don't explicitly prohibit. This is the difference between a feudal lord and an appointed official in a centralized bureaucracy. A feudal lord can do anything that his king has not explicitly prohibited him to do. All right? That gives him a lot of freedom. The king just says, as long as you submit X X dollars of taxes, and when I call you up for military duty, you submit this number of soldiers, and then you come to the capital, you know, X number of times a year, and kowtow down to me and present your obeisance, then you can do whatever the hell you want in your jurisdiction. I'm not going to be looking over your shoulder as long as the people don't rebel against you and create problems for me. Do whatever you want. Rule however you want. I'm not going to micromanage you. That's a feudal lord. An appointed official in a large centralized imperial bureaucracy has different marching orders. He can only do exactly what is permitted you understand the difference? A feudal lord can do anything that is not prohibited. An appointed official can only do exactly what is permitted. You are to deal only with people who come in to submit their taxes. These are the forms you fill out. These are the boxes you check. And that is it. That is all you do every day. No change. And I don't want you to do anyone else's job. If you get done early... You sit there and you go over the tax documents again until your shift is over. You don't say, hey, I'm done. I'm going to go help out my, my neighbor. I'm going to go help out my colleague. I'm going to be a go-getter and see what else I can do to please the prince, please the emperor, and make his realm run better. Uh-uh. And we'll find out why when we get to Han Fates' teachings in, in greater detail in a moment. Okay, the legalists are trying to understand how to make a large government run like a well-oiled machine. So you take out the human factor. Okay, you take out subjectivity. And the individual people are cogs in the machine. They're interchangeable. That's the ideal. The Confucians say you need to have good men. You need to find good men and put them into power. Han Feitz is saying, yeah, good luck with that. That's highly dependent on individual personalities and individual people. You want to create a state that lasts over hundreds of years and is as big as we're dealing with? You need to, find, you need to cut the individual personality out of it. Okay? And you need to have laws that clearly stipulate how this person and that person are supposed to function. And if they die, if they get fired, if they're gone and someone else takes their place, the next person can succeed them seamlessly. Okay, because everything is all drawn out already and very clear. Okay, 
The legalists want to create successful, faceless rule among people from vastly different ethnic and cultural backgrounds. It says no matter who you are, what your background is, we've got a slot that you're going to fit into. The slot doesn't, isn't tailor-made for you. You become tailor-made and molded for the slot in the government that we're going to insert you in. Okay, and this is actually, you know, this is true of any sort of company or corporation or uh, just or, or, or organizations. Um, CEOs oftentimes will pay, you know, tens of thousands of dollars for workplace culture gurus and people who teach them how to be more efficient. They should be reading Han Feitze for the, co- you know, 10 bucks to buy his book and read Han Feitze because Han Feitze is dealing with the problem of how you um, grow from a small organization to a large and large organization in which the CEO, the emperor, cannot possibly oversee every single detail of what goes on in his business. Okay? He's he's one person. He needs to have a, a, a system that's larger than him to make sure that it functions. Okay. If you study American history, you might have heard of Taylorism in the 19th century and whatnot, trying to make the, worst, the workplace more efficient. And um, you know, Han Feitz is well ahead of this. Okay, uh, the ancient uh, Huaxia culture sphere uh, thinkers were tackling this problem 2,000 years earlier in the third century BC. Actually, they've been talking about it. The legalists have been talking about it since the seventh century BC. Han Feitz is just going to crystallize these ideas um, better than anyone else will before him. All right. So. This goes to the heart of what makes an empire distinct from states. You have a multiplicity of group identities all coming together, with no self-evident reason to band together in a single state. The legalists want to create and apply the glue that holds these different groups together. They want to create laws that allow government machinery to run independent of itself and independent of individual personalities and incompetent rulers. They also recognize You're going to have a lot of incompetent rulers because, you know, succession is often genetic. It's hereditary in one form or another. So you can't expect that everyone's going to be as vigorous as the founder of a dynasty. Eventually, you're going to get duds who show no interest in governing whatsoever. And they're womanizers, they're drunks, they're sickly, whatever. You need to have a system set up so the government can function in spite of them, not because of them. Now, many of the basic concepts that Han Feitz is going is to articulate will, on the surface, resemble Confucian ideas. Okay, And many are just sort of more cynical, pragmatic applications of Confucian platforms, plus a few grumpy ideas from Moltze. All right, Han Feitz will believe very strongly in the rectification of names, which we first saw with Confucius. Your title... Your, you know, and your deeds, what you actually do, must align. Like Confucius said a father needs to be a father. A king needs to be a king. Mencius went, uh, talked a lot about that, about that as well. Han Feitze will say, okay, let's get away from the society. Let's talk about in government. A clerk must be a clerk. Right? An officer of the left guard must be an officer of the left guard, not an officer of the right guard, not a general. Exactly what he is supposed to be according to his title. No more. And no less. The Confucians would have said, no less, but you can be more. You can be an awesome father. <laughs> okay, you can be an awesome king. Han Feitzu would say, ah, no more, no less. And again, we have a wonderful example that we'll use to illustrate that a little bit later. Han Feitzu would say that 
an organized, unequal hierarchy is just and necessary. It enables a bureaucracy to function, just like Shunza says that inequality enables society to function. You cannot have equality all around, or people cannot work together. Inequality is essential in, in, in you know, our personal relationships and in our official relationships in a government. And then finally, man is evil. Man is evil. And even those who don't really embody their evilness that much because of their context, because of the fact that they weren't surrounded by urine, they were surrounded by perfume, they became wonderful. Even those people, good people, can still do evil things. Okay, that's very important. Good people will not always be good. Even they can do bad things. And a state must take account of this and minimize the consequences of human emotions as much as possible. And a few years ago, I had an issue. We had an issue. <laughs> That's to understate it and sugarcoat it. Uh, we had an um, um, uh, incident. There we go. Incident. That's the word. Um, with my, my daughter. Uh, uh, you know, quite young. Okay. Uh, maybe six or seven at the time. Went to Target. And after we had gone to Target to do some shopping, later on we realized that in her pocket she had taken a little toy, like a little keychain or something. And we couldn't believe it. Like, oh my God, our daughter, this little angel, and my daughter is such an angel. She's good. Even Han Feitzer would have a hard time looking at my daughter and saying, evil by nature. Uh uh uh. He might say that about my son when he sees his behavior, but no one would say that about my daughter. Even Han Feitzer would say, God, maybe she is good by nature. <laughs> Okay. She stole something. Are you kidding me? My little angel stole from Target. Well, so my wife and I, of course, go into conniptions here. And we, say, and we start reacting like Confucians. We react like good Confucians. We say, you have to admit it. You have to repent. You have to reform. You have to understand what you did wrong. And we're going to improve you. Okay. We're probably a little more like Shunzi than Mencius here. We're like, we're going to, you know, take this block of wood that, it, that you are, and we're going to carve it and improve it. And it's a coercive process, but we're going to make you good, whether you like it or not. Okay? That's how, you know, we're going to improve you through holistic methods. So we go, and we're all righteous, and we want our daughter to go through the experience of admitting her wrong, seeing what she did, and paying for it. And improving herself like a good Confucian. So we take her to Target. And I'm all, you know, standing in line. I'm like, okay, this is going to be a big moment in which my daughter is going to have this wonderful awakening, Confucian awakening. And we get to the checkout and I explain what's going on to the, to the cashier. Cashier doesn't give a shit. I was like, I'm, I'm sitting there, he's like, yeah, okay, whatever. And, you know, it's all, it's, give me your money, give me your money, pay for it and whatnot, apologize. And he's like, sorry, and the guy isn't even listening. But he doesn't care. And I'm going to get out here and I'm like, that wasn't really the educational moment, the Confucian educational reformist moment that we were hoping for. Because Target is a big corporation, just like a big empire. And they have instituted laws, faceless laws and principles that go beyond individual personalities. Okay? Now, I don't actually know if Han Feidza would approve of the way that the employees dealt with that. Now, my daughter's a little girl, so maybe he would. 
But according to Han Feito's philosophy, if it was me who had done that, okay, an adult man, and I went back to Target, I would be punished. They would say, I guess it's great that you acknowledged what you did, but the laws say that you need to be punished no matter who you are and no matter what your actions. And here's your punishment. And I would have been guilty of shoplifting. Okay? But the point is, is that Han Feitze is trying to take out the individual human factor from the equation. Okay? Now, a critic might say, well, the downside of this is that you get exactly what you, Professor Jacobs, saw when you took your daughter back to Target. You're seeing apathy. Employees, civil servants, if we go back to the government analogy, who just don't care. Because he says, you just run the cash register and you do nothing else. That's all you do. And if the security guard didn't catch your daughter taking that little toy out of the store, then it doesn't matter. And the cashier doesn't do the security jobs, uh, the security officer's job, and the security officer doesn't do the cashier job. Okay? So in a sense, Target functioned exactly as the faceless bureaucracy is supposed to function when you get to a certain size and scale where the CEO can't be watching everything. Okay? I know exactly how Han Feitzo would have responded. The security officer of Target would have been punished for not catching it. That's what would have happened. And we got a great example in a moment where I'm going to tease that out a little bit more. Okay? You also see the influence of the grumpy old men, Molza in particular as well. Molza was against music and, you know, joys and these sort of things. And then you had some of the later Confucians say, whoa, 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 whoa. Man's got to have his joy. This has to be regulated and in, you know, manageable doses. Han Feitze is very much music is bad, licentious, women are bad. Okay? Han Feitze was uh, quite the misogynist. If you read his stuff, he even has an explicit warning against women for the ruler. He says, women are for pleasure only. No pillow talk. A man should never, a ruler should never talk about affairs of state with his women. And he says in particular, watch out for women, especially as they approach the age of 30. He says, a man, a man desires sex no matter how old he is. And he, and he uses the, the, the age 50. This gives you some idea of the expected lifespan back then. All right, 50, he's trying to invoke that age as a really old age. <laughs> a man still desires sex at 50 he says, but a woman's, a, a woman's beauty is gone by 30. She can't make it last that long, her beauty. So what does that mean? She will leverage her fading beauty to exploit the weakness of men around her before she loses her one and only source of leverage, her one and only asset. So he says, watch out for women. Use them for pleasure, but don't let them get into your mind. Because they'll manipulate you. And he says, quote, Less than half of all rulers die from illness. When those who stand to profit by the ruler's death are many, he is in peril. These women may like you, he says, but it's a simple, pragmatic calculus of profit and loss. Just like with the carpenter. The carpenter doesn't want people to die. But he makes money off of coffins when they do. Your mistress, your concubine, she may not want you to die. She may actually truly like you. But if she can profit by your death, and as we'll see when we talk about women in the family, oftentimes, 
oftentimes at the elite levels, not necessarily the poverty-stricken levels of society, but at the elite levels, a woman whose husband dies puts her in a position that is more autonomous and more strong than that of pretty much any other woman in East Asian society. Okay? So Han Feitz is saying, if, you, if, if the women around you can benefit by your death, if they can then speak in the name of a young son to get what they want and you're not, and you're not there to counter them, watch out. Watch out. It's just a simple, pragmatic calculus of profit and loss. If people will benefit from your disappearance, then they will not stop bringing your disappearance about. Now, the legalists, and Han Fades in particular, will always be condemned by Confucians, with little acknowledgement of how Confucians are the flip, sides of the, the flip side of the same coin. Okay? And what I always like to suggest to my students is that what you're going to see with imperial government throughout East Asian history is a mix of the two. On the surface, you're always going to hear the people in power preach Confucius and Mencius. People are good. Gentlemen run the government. And we're improving people's lives. Okay? But in practice, it will be a mix of Confucian benevolence, Mencian benevolence, and mercy, and second chances, in tandem with the more coercive, harsh, unforgiving ideas of Xunzi and especially Han Feitze. All right, let's get into some of the details. Paddle along here, sort of as a preamble, long enough. Han Feitze begins his text, the surviving text, with a chapter called The Way of the Ruler. What are the ways of the ruler? Okay, if you want to be a successful man at the top, whether it's a company or a government, Names and results must match. That's the rectification of names. Proposals and results must match. What people do must match what they said they were going to do. Okay? Bombastic words and deceptive initiative are the things that the ruler needs to watch out for. Okay? The easiest way for a ruler to become manipulated by the people who are around them, his officials, his wives his kids, other rulers, is if they know what you want. Okay? Han Feitze gives advice to his kings that people will manipulate you if they find out what your desires are. The only person you can control 100% is yourself. Do not reveal your desires or your will. He actually borrows the idea of wu-wei, non-action. By not doing things, you will get other people to reveal what they believe and what they want. And that knowledge of what other people want, that is knowledge of their weaknesses that you can manipulate. And any successful politician is a master at revealing as little about themselves as possible. Watch the news. Watch a presidential debate. How many times can you ask a politician a question? And they can evade the question and not answer it. The worst thing a politician can do is to get pinned down on the record stating what they desire, what they want, what they believe in. In specific terms. They will be as vague as possible and they will evade the issue entirely if they can. That's a master politician. You're not giving anyone 
material to work with to manipulate you or blackmail you or exploit you without you even realizing it. Mao Zedong, if we get into the 20th century Chinese history, was the master at this. Oftentimes in my classes when I talk about communist China, I get the question, you know, what did Mao really believe? What what were his true beliefs? We have no idea what Mao's true beliefs were. They shift in the wind. The guy's impossible to pin down. Because he's always trying to evade giving a concrete answer. And then he invites everyone else to constantly give him their opinion, their advice. And that's when he attacks. He attacks his enemies once he gets them to go on record stating what they believe in. And that's the opening he needed to take them down. And it's very difficult to take him down because he reveals so little about himself. Generally speaking, the less you talk, the better. And the more you can get others to talk the better it is for you. The ruler also needs a fall guy to take blame when things go bad. Okay? The ruler takes credit for the deeds of others when things go well, but when things go bad, it cannot be pinned on the ruler. It diminishes his authority, it erodes his credibility, it crushes the aura of infallibility that Han Feitze says the ruler has to have. Again, all politicians are the master of this making sure someone else gets blamed when the shit hits the fan. All right, this is essential for the prestige of the state and as a symbol of the unity of the people. Then Han Feitze poses the question in his chapter on having standards. He says, so many states decline upon the death of the founder. Oh, big problem. Okay, CEOs who start a a business themselves, and then watch it become successful and big, often agonize over this problem. There was once a time that I could control everything, and that's what made this company so successful, because I'm so awesome! In great Confucian super gentleman, you know, belief. But the very product of your success as an awesome, capable, talented person who works so hard is that you've grown a company or a state that is far larger than you can possibly manage anymore. That's the, the vexations of success. So, in the terms of government, Han Feitze says, so many states decline upon the death of the founder. How to solve this? How to make sure your dynasty lasts 260 years, like the longest dynasties will last in East Asia. About 260 is your ceiling, more or less. He says, impersonal law must trump personal judgment in the selection of officials. Okay? Eliminate all subjective criteria. Subjectivity is man's weakness. He says, humans, our senses are our worst enemies. Our eyes, our ears, our mind can be deceived. What influence do you see here? If you said Zhuangzi, you are correct. This is exactly what Zhuangzi, the Taoist philosopher, relativity, perspective, taught us. Is that... Our minds are mental prisons in which we are trapped and we can't even help be subconsciously influenced by things. Han Feitze is taking Zhuangzi's idea, unlike all the other Confucians who will repudiate Zhuangzi as much as they possibly can. Han Feitze is taking this idea straight from Zhuangzi and saying our senses create subjectivity, which creates our weakness. Only a reliance on clear law and policy this is Shunzu's rights again, can withstand deception. So his analogy he brings out, again, he, he, he loves the analogy of a carpenter. A carpenter can judge a straight line all on his own, 
but he'll still use a ruler to take the measurement and avoid human error. Okay? He's, per per he's perfectly capable of drawing a straight line himself. He does it all the time. But he still uses an infallible instrument to make sure it's correct and decrease the chance of human error, human subjectivity, to zero. Laws are the same thing. You may be a capable ruler, but there may come a time when your capabilities begin to decline and you don't even realize your capabilities have declined. Or you die and your incompetent son takes over. What then? Use a ruler. <laughs> laws. Clear laws. Clear promotion for criteria. None of this wishy-washy stuff from the Confucians about, you know, uh, the official who garners the acclaim and love of the people is the one who should be promoted. Or Moltze, impartial caring. The official who practices impartial caring should be promoted. Han Feitza says, that, that's, that's a bunch of bullshit. Okay, you need to have very clear promotional and demotional criteria for how to fill your government offices. And it should not be related to, oh, this person's very talented. It's this person can fulfill the duties of this job and he will do no more and no less. And here's a training regimen to make sure he knows how to do it. And that's it. That's all you use to fill your government bureaucracy with. And Han Feitz, it goes on and he discusses what he calls the two handles. What are the two handles? The two handles are the means by which a ruler controls his officials. That is, punishments and rewards. And he comes in with another one of his wonderful analogies. He says, the two handles, punishments and rewards, are like the claws and teeth of a tiger when fighting a dog. Of course, the tiger has all the advantages when he fights a dog. But if he doesn't use his claws and teeth, the dog could beat him. Okay? Just because the tiger is bigger than the dog doesn't mean the dog isn't looking for the slightest weakness in the tiger and is, you know, trying as hard as he can to, to overthrow it. Just because you have the biggest, most successful state in history doesn't mean that there aren't people just waiting in the wings to overthrow you and take over at the slightest sign of weakness. Punishments and rewards are the claws and teeth of the tiger. You have strict punishments, no matter who the person is in your bureaucracy. And reliable rewards when they fulfill their duties the way that they were supposed to. Okay, and it doesn't matter if the person who has overstepped the boundaries of their duties is your highest advisor, or your brother, or whoever it is. If they transgress, they are punished, exactly as anyone else in the realm would be punished. Okay, and he says, how do you know when to dole out punishments? The barometer is the rectification of names rubric. It says, quote, match up names and results, that is to say, words and deeds, to know if people are truly fulfilling their job description and only their job description. And he provides now what is, to me, one of my favorite case studies from Han Feitze. He says, there was once upon a time the Marquis Zhao of the state of Han. And this guy, the Marquis Zhao, one night he got drunk and fell asleep, naked. It was a cool night, and the Marquis Zhao got drunk and fell asleep without putting his robe on. He's stark naked. Nearby, the keeper of the hat, this is the title of an official, the keeper of the hat 
sees his lord naked, sees the marquee naked on a cool night, and he says, uh-oh, I'd better put a robe on him, or he might catch a cold and die. So the keeper of the hat walks by, comes in, and puts a robe on the, mar- on the drunk naked marquee jowl. The next day, the marquee wakes up, and he says, who put this robe on me? And he finds out it was the keeper of the hat. He says, where is my keeper of the robe? This is another title. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe perhaps Han Fades is making these things up, but you know, it wouldn't surprise me at all if they actually had a title and a position for keeper of the hat and keeper of the robe. Um, and he says, where's the keeper of the, ro- of, of the royal robe? Brings him in. Both men are punished by the Marquis Zhao. And here's Han Fades' famous gloss on the situation. Quote, it was not that he did not dislike the cold, but he considered the trespass of one official upon the duties of another to be a greater danger than the cold. Okay? This is my example again with Target. I told you there was a good example coming later on. All right? Han Feitze would not fault the cashier for not caring about my daughter's, you know, revelatory moment that we hope she would have when she returned the stolen toy and paid for it and said she's sorry. Because that's not the cashier's job. In fact, Han Feitza would have been annoyed and probably punished the cashier if the cashier did anything other than ring up the transaction. It's the keeper of the security camera, not the keeper of the cashier, who would get in trouble. Because they were the ones who didn't catch the theft in the first place. Okay? And if the cashier went out of his way, if we actually did get a, d- a different response and the cashier says... Oh, you know, this was a big deal, little girl. You know, this is very serious. Uh, you know, you can get in big trouble if you do this again and give her a whole, you know, Confucian teaching moment. Han Feitza, the CEO of Target, would have walked in and he would have said, Keeper of the cashier, you're being demoted. Keeper of the security camera, you're being punished too. Both of you are being punished because neither one of you did your job. The security camera guy, he didn't do enough. He didn't fulfill his job duties, and the keeper of the cashier stepped beyond his job duties. And one of the dangers that Han Feitza thinks about when he thinks about is people who go beyond their station, he's worried that these are ambitious people, okay? People who do more than their assigned lot in their job are those who have ambitions. And people who have ambitions who are below you are dangerous if they aren't regulated according to laws and the regular cycle of promotions, The ruler and impersonal law should determine who gets promoted and when and on what criteria. But if someone is trying, you know, a brown noser who's really trying to impress you, go out of his way, bring you coffee in the morning, okay, stays late, Han Feitza says, watch out for this person. They are unduly ambitious. They are not content to rise on the ladder of success in accordance with the faceless cogs of the bureaucratic machinery that we've already set out. All right, they aren't willing to go, you know, G1, G2, G3, G4, all the way up to G15 in the government bureaucracy. These are the ranks of government levels and salaries in the federal government. All right, so he wants to leap from G1 to G10 overnight by impressing you. Watch out for men like that. They subvert the system and they undermine the way the system functions. And they're probably also looking to stab you in the back one day. And then finally, Han Feitze has to have some words for all of his ideological competitors. He has a chapter called Eminence and Learning. 
in which we see him become the only philosopher to question the utility of education and learning as the means to everything that is good in the world. All the other sure said education and learning are just so wonderful. Zhuangzi liked to poke fun at it sometimes, but even he was highly educated. And he would say you need to sort of temper back your expectations of education, but he nonetheless advocated education. Han Feizi will criticize the learning, the so-called learning, he would say, of the Mohists and the Confucians. All deceit, he says. He says they're constantly hearkening back to the Golden Age, the ancient classics. How can we have faith in antiquity, however, he says, when we don't even know which text of the Confucian classics are accurate? We have all these different received versions. How do we know which one is accurate? They're picking and choosing. And time changes anyways. If there was a golden age, wouldn't the golden age have talked about a previous golden age? He's always suspicious of overly educated men. He says even Confucius admitted to getting things wrong, and he was a super gentleman. How much more our own educated men who can't measure up to Confucius' example? He's totally dismissive of Confucian and Mohist doctrines about caring for the people. He says this is a rhetorical tool that justifies, that justifies evil behavior, evil self-interested behavior in a benevolent gloss. He says the world is very simple. The rich get what they deserve, the poor get what they deserve. It's all either a result of laziness or merit. Don't wrap it up in this discourse about caring for the people and whatnot. Okay? It says war is the same way. You don't need to say that it's punishment for another state and say, you know, I'm not truly waged war. It's a defensive war, preemptive war, whatever. Because war is going to happen. War is a necessity. You're not going to get rid of war. And so don't try and glorify peace and nonviolence like the previous philosophers did. That just makes you a hypocrite. War is going to happen. You have to have an army. You can't go into another state and just think that because you're a super gentleman, the people are going to bend like wind over the barley, like barley before the wind and submit to you because they recognize your moral superiority. Bullshit, he says. He says, you got to go to war. you got to win a bloody battle. And if you valorize peace and nonviolence, how are you going to get people to join your army when you conscript them for war? They're going to use your own ideals to say, we're not, we, that, you know, we shouldn't go to war. He even says, learning itself can be bad. Who will want to farm or do any sort of dirty work if they all want to labor with their minds? And not with their hands. People who labor with their minds live off the blood and sweat and tears of other people. He's not criticizing that state of affairs. He says that's the way it should be. We earned it. But nonetheless, don't go around telling everyone that they should aspire to that. Because they can't and they shouldn't. The overriding message that Han Feitze has, no matter what the topic is, don't encourage any pursuit that does not strengthen the state in your rule. And if learning can sometimes undermine the state you're trying to set up, learning's not good either then. He has this one part where he identifies the five vermin of society, the people who do the most to undermine faceless, impersonal, bureaucratic rule. Two of the vermin are the Confucians and scholars. He puts merchants in there as well. He says, vermin are parasites. They don't offer anything to the state, to the country. They just take Calls Confu- he, he, he calls uh, Confucians the, quote, shaman priests of rhetoric. They promise a lot, but it's just like a shaman superstitious ideas. 
It's just promises and discourse and words wrapped in a benevolent gloss. I alone can teach you how to actually seize, hold, and improve your power. And that is the secret to a successful state. You want to improve a lot of the people? Create a stable state that functions well and roots out corruption. That is your prescription for a harmonious society. Don't get the idea that Han Feitz is some sadist here. All right, Han Feitz, he has a rhyme and a reason. All this cynical stuff is to him, he's just saying, I'm just telling it like it is, man. This is the world we live in. And if you want to make, you know, do something good in this world, you got you to ex- admit and accept that this is what it's like. There's a lot of horrible stuff that goes on. And this is how you minimize the horrible stuff. And as for the people themselves that we're improving, they don't realize it. But our rule is for their own good. He rejects the people as a primary source of political legitimacy, like all the Confucians did, and the Mohists. He says, the people are like children. They have no idea what's good for them. They don't rejoice in the things that actually make a state strong. They don't want to pay taxes, but taxes are essential to pay for the security that they benefit from. So don't worry about winning the hearts of the people. Okay, You don't need to worry about winning the hearts of the people. That's not essential. The Confucians just say that to make themselves sound good. The hearts of the people are not what make a state rise and fall. All right? The people are stupid. They're stupid and ignorant. And only we know what's best for them. So don't, don't even get them involved in the political process. That's just a large sham. This is what could... Han Feitz almost certainly would have said about democracy. What a sham to give the illusion that the people's voice actually matters. It doesn't matter. They're all stupid. They don't know how to run a state. Leave it to the experts, the politicians. He says, quote, if the child's head is not shaved, its sores will spread. Here's his analogy. And if its boil is not lanced, it will become sicker than ever. But when the child is having its head shaved or its boil lanced, someone must hold it down while the loving mother performs the operation. And it yells and screams incessantly, for it does not understand that the little pain it suffers now will bring great benefit later. Oh, isn't that a wonderful quote to sum up Han Feitz's philosophy? He's got a loving mother in there. We are loving mothers to the people, but we have to do things the child doesn't want. And the child doesn't want it, and it's, it's painful too. It's painful, the child kicks and screams, but we are a loving mother, and it's for your own good. And you'll thank us later, is what Han Feitze says. Okay, you can see how this is applied shunzi. The bending and straightening and forging of the people for their own good. But whereas Xunzi had the luxury to just talk about abstract ideas in society, Han Feitz is actually in government and trying to apply it to real government policy and laws. Now Han Feitz is formulating these ideas for the resumption, like I said, of a unipolar world that was far bigger and more complex than any unipolar world that had ever preceded it. The last time we had a unipolar world, only one self-proclaimed, civilized, literate state with dense urban stratification and classes and sedentary wealth concentrated in the top 1% of people. Okay, that was the Zhou dynasty for maybe 300 years at most. All right, in which the Zhou could legitimately say, 
we are the most materially sophisticated and wealthy state as far as we are aware of anywhere in, in the universe. And there is no one who is anything like us, who resembles us. Okay, they could say that for a couple hundred years at most. And then for the next 800 years, 700 years, they couldn't say that. There were many, many different states who all said we're all civilized. We're all part of the Huaxia culture sphere. And we have pretensions to become the only state left standing. Well, finally, by 221 BC, we have only one state left standing. The Qin Empire. Q-I-N is the way it's spelled today. The Qin Empire will lend its name to the outside world as China. The Q is pronounced like a C-H. Qin. This will become a suffix to Sanskrit words in India via trade. And uh, through the Sanskrit word China in, uh, uh, um, in India, the British and other, for and other Europeans will encounter that, and that'll be their word that they come up with to describe the China that they see 1,500 years later. Okay, now I want to talk briefly about some of the major imperial innovations that the Qin Empire will undertake for about 15 years. It's going to be very short-lived, 221 to 206 BC. But it will be, it will be succeeded by the Han Dynasty, equally famous. The Han Dynasty, with a few hiccups here and there, will last for 400 years. Okay, so the first imperial complex, the Qin-Han states, let's put them together, okay? Uh, it lasts for about 400 years. And during this 400-year period, you're going to see the largest, the largest and most complex unipolar world East Asia had yet seen. Okay? And I combine this with Han Feidze, because Han Feidze was a very influential thinker and advisor in the decades immediately before the Qin Dynasty eventually conquered all of its rivals and became all under heaven. Okay, so his ideas are very relevant in many ways to the policies that would be undertaken when the first empire was created. As I said before, an empire differs from a state. An empire has to have significant ethnic and cultural ling and linguistic difference over large expanses of land. Okay? It's both different, it's both bigger in scale and diversity than the states that came before it. Okay? And you have to come up with a way to glue all of these diverse peoples who, if they got together, probably couldn't communicate with one another, at least not in speech. You got to glue them all together and convince them that you belong in this larger state, this larger empire. And that's a more salient aspect of your identity than the individual states that you once came from in your own parochial identities. So there were five major imperial innovations that were instituted during the early Qin Han imperial revolution. And the first one was a new identity for the ruler of this state, this empire. You have someone who's in charge now of the largest state the world has ever seen. Okay? With greater diversity the world, that, that the world has ever seen. You need a new title. You can't call him a king anymore. We've had kings for a long time. Kings rule over individual smaller states. Now you have a state that is you know, e equivalent in size to a hundred previous states. You need something that transcends the previous equality of many different kings. Okay? You need inequality. You need a new term that elevates the ruler of this empire over the previous kings. To put it in Shunzi's and Han Feidze terms, you need a new term, a new, a new title for the ruler that creates inequality 
with regard to the previous kings. You need something that's higher than a king. Qin Shi Huangdi, that's the first emperor, it just literally means the first empire, the first emperor of the Qin, talked about this transcendence of his new state and the pretensions that he had to rule over larger expanses of the world and people than had ever been ruled over before. He said, quote, throughout the six directions of the universe, everything belongs to the emperor. Wherever there is a human footprint, there is not one who did not become a subject. His kindness reaches even oxen and horses. There is not one who did not benefit. Every man is safe under his roof. Wow, for a man with pretensions like that, you have to be better than a king, a mere king. And so they came up with a new word. They took the root of king. You can't really explain this that well over voice. Uh, if I had a chalkboard, I would explain this better. But they took the character for king, Wang, and they shrunk it by about half its size. And then on top of the, the graph for Wang, they added another character that means like a shining force, a sun, whiteness, light. And so you have a new graph, which will be pronounced Huang, a new graph that has a shining, searing light grandness on top of the graph for a king. So you already have the idea that this is something that transcends the kings and has supernatural associations with the sun. Okay, and then they add another character to it, D. Where in the world have we heard D before? Well, if you said the Shang Dynasty, most powerful ancestor god of the Shang Dynasty, you are correct. Now we're really getting supernatural here. The most powerful god known to the earliest literate dynasty in East Asian history. You put the two characters together, and you have the combination of a shining force, literally on top of kings, who is further enhanced by being called by the name of the most powerful god of the earliest literate state. The resulting word for emperor, Huangdi, is someone who is beyond mere mortals. The regional kings of individual states who have all been conquered pale by comparison with Huangdi. Inequality has been restored on a grander scale than ever before. Now, you also have to have the standardization of a single linguistic script. During the Warring States era, every single state and region will speak and write in different ways. Now, it's not always mutually unintelligible, but there's lots of variant graphs for Chinese characters in every region of the Warring States area. And some could be significant. And speech, even more so. Okay, you go, you know, you know, 500 miles away from each other and you're going to have people, you know, elites, educated elites, speaking languages that are mutually unintelligible to other elites. They could probably only communicate with difficulty through the written word. The Qin Dynasty will start the process of sort of streamlining and standardizing the Chinese script. They'll cut out about 25% of variant characters and institute a single clerical script that is to be used for the bureaucracy, and a single courtly speech, sort of the predecessor of Mandarin Chinese, which is just based on the Beijing speech, which is where the capital was, which we talked about in East Asian languages. Now, I don't want to overstate the process of standardization. There's still much more variation than we're accustomed to today, but compared to what came before it, speech to a certain extent, and writing to a much greater extent, are going to be standardized and homogenized much more than they were before this. Both the Qin and the Han Dynasty will also look to regulate intellectual thought. 
okay? It's not okay to have 100 schools of thought contending, which was often said about the Warring States period. All of this intellectual ferment that characterized these Confucians and Mohists and Taoists and Legalists arguing with each other all the time, that's not good for stability. Let's pick one and implement it. And debate ends there. Well, not completely. Okay? What these states will want to do is they'll want to recognize and create and sponsor a, you know, a standard version of an orthodox literary canon. And they'll hold this up as the basis of state legitimacy. But then they'll say, you know, we have, there is a range of appropriate interpretation of these classical books. Okay? And if you range too far out of this, you're going to fall out of favor with the emperor. Okay? So they'll have libraries, they'll have imperial schools where scholars will study accepted topics. But the limits of criticism are, are, are regulated. There's only so far you can go. This is not pure intellectual freedom. There's far more intellectual freedom prior to the creation of the first empire in 221 BC than you'll ever have again after the creation of the first empire. Periods of disunity in East Asian history are far more conducive to intellectual variety and free thought than periods of political unity. Okay. Eventually you'll get the next step in this intellectual regulation process in which, you know, another 800 years later, 1,000 years later, you're going to get the creation of a civil service exam, a standard civil service exam that will test standard knowledge that everyone studies in regulated standard schools. Okay. The goal is to prevent the replication of warring states' intellectual ferment. It needs to be controlled. You have intellectual debate and discussion, but the range that you can engage in is much more constricted now. Okay. Now, the Han Dynasty will try to make it sound like the Qin Dynasty were much less permissive than they themselves were. And so they created this whole myth that the Qin emperor actually burned all the books and buried Confucian scholars alive. And that myth lasted for, you know, the next 2,000 years. It was, it was accepted uncritically. And it's only recently, uh, archaeological evidence and new texts that have come to light and whatnot seem to suggest that this probably didn't happen. Uh, the Qin dynasty and the Han dynasty were quite similar in not burning books and burying Confucian scholars alive, but in regulating them, looking over them censoring them, to use, you know, more a modern-day term. And then, of course, two things that uh, you, you would totally expect, and I don't really need to go into too much detail with, the standardization of measurements and the standardization of transportation. They're very closely related to one another. As far as measurements go, each warring state and each region of the, of, of the former empire, uh, you know, they have their different weights, their different axle widths, their different coins, their different seals. And the Qin and the Han are going to institu uh, institute new policies of oversight and punishments if you don't conform to the new weights and axle widths and coins and measurements. There will be regulators, imperial agents who will be sent out to the marketplace in major towns. And they'll watch over and say, this is the, this is the type of you know, weight that you have to use. And this is how it's going to be calculated. And we have someone maintaining our standards. Okay. The chain will mint its own money. Okay, money is extremely important. All right, the efficacy of all measurements, especially money, depend on trust in the political authority that is sponsors those measurements. 
You say this political authority has to be able to maintain this single standard for the foreseeable future. The only reason the United States has all kinds of wacky measurements, we use Fahrenheit, not Celsius, okay, miles, not kilometers, all that weird stuff, where they're pretty much the only state that does this in the entire world. No other state could get away with that nonsense. The only reason that we can get away with it is because we're the most powerful country on earth with huge cultural influence. Okay, so people put up with it. And because they believe in the continued viability and strength and stability of the United States, all of our wacky measurements perpetuate. And people have faith in them, even if it makes no sense whatsoever that we go our own way compared to the rest of the world. Okay? Money and measurements are a reflection of the prestige and people's blind faith in the government that oversees those measurements. Now, money, unlike trade in kind, if you think barley or cigarettes or anything that's traded where you say, I give you two cantaloupes and you give me two tomatoes, and that, that's trade in kind, money has no inherent value. You can't clothe yourself in it. You can't eat it. You can't drink it. You can't sleep on money. Okay? You have to get people to believe that that money is, has value. And the only way that money has value is if the government sponsors that money and they're willing to back it up. So money represents the ultimate leap of faith. The use of money asks you to believe that other people believe in something. Why do other people believe in it? Because it reflects the political power and prestige of the issuing authority. A strong currency will be accepted anywhere, even among enemies. This is why counterfeiting is almost always such a serious crime. It's just as bad as impersonating an official from the perspective of the government that issues the money. Now, the Qin Dynasty, the Qin Empire, doesn't create the first money but it will standardize one system of monetary exchange first over the largest extent of land. Uh, and that's the major achievement. And of course, like I said, roads, transportation, the unification of basically of public infrastructure. The Qin will begin the creation of over 4,250 uh, miles of standard roads emanating out from their capital at Xianyang, all right, they'll begin the process of taking many different smaller walls that have been built as defensive measures during the Warring States period and trying to link them up. It's not quite the Great Wall that we think of when we think of the myth of the Great Wall, uh, but it's something. Okay, uh, there, 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 there is an attempt to unify public infrastructure, the type of roads that you travel on. You know you're on a Qin Dynasty road by its width, by its maintenance, by its quality. Just like money, you have to believe in the state that maintains the value of this phenomenon. Now, as I said, the Qin Dynasty won't last very long, 15 years. But the Han will continue all of these innovations for the next 400. And in the process, they'll tar the Qin Dynasty's reputation and make it sound like the Qin was this rapacious, uh, violent state that did everything wrong after it took power, and the Han sort of dialed back the excesses when, in fact, uh, you know, the Han just won a battle, <laughs> okay, over the Qin. Um, regardless, the basic themes that I've outlined here will endure, okay? They will endure as the new foundation of the imperial state, the first imperial state in East Asia, and yet they will continue to be transformed every couple of centuries. This is why I, you know, we can't ever subscribe to the idea that it's one damn dynasty after another and each dynasty looks like all the others. Okay? That's what the Chinese histories, the official Chinese histories of previous dynasties made the dynasties look like. They made them seem all inter 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 interchangeable. 
to the point where you have no idea that the Shang Dynasty used to cut open people's heads and have gruesome human sacrifices. All right? There's going to be major transformations that alter the basic blueprint in fundamental ways. And in our next episode, we're going to, expl- we're going to explore one of the first significant shifts to occur in the new imperial model, and it's going to come about as a result of major demographic and geographical shifts. And I hope you join me next time in episode 11 when we talk about the Great Southern Migration. (laughs) 